This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Alongside Guy Johnson in London, I'm Jonathan Farrow here in New York. Good day to you, Mr. Johnson. What are you looking at? So I'm I'm interested in a number of things today. First of all, I'm fascinated to see what the Chinese GDP number looks like overnight. I think it's going to be one of those kinds of things you want to pay attention to. What effect is the stimulus that China has been putting to work having in terms of the numbers. I, I, that's going to be something that I'm going to be really looking for. I, I know you're spending a lot of time talking about, and I was listening to your show earlier, talking about what's happening with the PMI data that's coming out of Europe. I think those two things are connected. But John, I'm also fascinated by this story coming out of Paris. And here's the reason why. Notre Dame, this huge, iconic building in the center of the French capital, massively underinvested in, this huge tourist draw, uh, this huge kind of... Um, sort of centre of, of French culture, massively underinvested in. I think that's just indicative of what is happening in Europe at the moment, the inability to invest in core infrastructure. This may not be kind of classic infrastructure, but I think it fits. And then you end up with a situation where all these kind of rich people around the world basically say, oh, do you know what, we'll fund that, yeah. which then just highlights the wealth inequality story that's at the heart of this this yellow vest protest. It kind of you, you couldn't kind of write the script more, I don't think. But there is another in way terms of, of highlighting it. it. There's another yep. way of looking at it that the concentrated wealth can be very beneficial sometimes because it can yep. respond so much faster than cumbersome governments. Two families, two families alone, three hundred million euros pledged almost immediately. I think that just shows you that sometimes concentrated wealth can be really beneficial at a time of crisis. And we actually saw this in the financial crisis. When companies needed to be taken over, it was much easier to find one source of capital to raise a billion than it was to go and find a thousand people with a million. Okay, that's a fair point. But I think if you are one of those people standing on a roundabout in France and you're looking at the situation, you'll be saying, you know what? This is what just highlights the problem in, in, in France at the moment. Completely massive agree. massive Completely inequality, agree. huge concentrated pools of wealth that exist that are capable of kicking out millions and millions of dollars at the drop of a hat. I don't think that's going to solve Macron's problem with the Gilles Jaune. He needs to pull this country together. I think, unfortunately, I think this money being spent is only going to highlight and, and reinforce some of the concerns that, that the French populace have at the bottom yeah. end of the income spectrum. It's very tragic that a tragedy like what we saw overnight in Paris becomes an icon and the poster child of a movement like that. I, I, I'm not saying that it will, but I'm saying that it, I think it has the potential to do so. But I, I also just think it reinforces the underinvestment. How did we find ourselves in a situation where such a sort of important piece of French yeah. culture had so little money spent upon it? Well, Jeremy Corbyn um, of the Labour Party saying the same thing about the House of Parliament. There's a yeah. lesson to learn here. Get moving. Spend the money. Keep it. Keep if you spend the money, and you kind of think about what happened after the Second World War and kind of these big infrastructure programs. There was an, there was a wealth inequality issue that needed to be dealt with then. Yeah. That's what happened as well. Anyway, we'll come back. I, I know that Paul Dobson's dying to talk about this. He's not saying that at all. 
He's just kind of rolling his eyes a little bit at me at the that moment. That doesn't surprise uh, me in the slightest. Charlie Pellet, I know, is standing by with all the headlines. And here's what's going on. A lot of other stories to cover today. The UK labour market continuing its impressive performance in the three months through February. As employment jumped, wage growth far outpaced inflation. The Office for National Statistics said the number of people in work rose by 179,000 to a record, keeping unemployment at 3.9% lowest since 1975. Four days after President Trump's choice for Interior Secretary was confirmed by the Senate, the agency's Inspector General has opened an investigation into the former oil and gas lobbyist. Secretary David Bernhardt is being investigated according to letters sent to congressional Democrats and ethics groups who had alleged he had conflicts of interest and potential ethics violations. And as we told you at the top of the program, France's luxury goods tycoons are among the country's wealthiest individuals and companies to pledge at least 520 million pounds to help in the reconstruction of Notre Dame Cathedral a day after the Paris landmark was ravaged by fire. Latest from the news desk. And uh, Jonathan Farrell, back to you. Charlie, thank you very much. We should, of course, stress that we are still assessing the damage being done to the cathedral and still don't actually know the cause, Guy. But a, nope. a, a tragic incident overnight in Paris. Should we get to the economic data out of Europe? Because that might lift the spirits just a little bit. I think I think they're connected. But I, I think it's and, and I think it's going to be really important to see kind of what happens here. I think Europe is is really struggling at the moment and I think fiscal policy is the way forward. And and I think your point is is an interesting one that basically we're getting fiscal policy from the rich now. Um I don't know how much they're gonna end up spending, but they're gonna employ an awful lot of people rebuilding that building uh over the next few months the next few years, I suspect. Um, yeah, I think the uh, the data in Europe is is interesting right now. We're going to get some PMI data later on this week, John, as you've indicated. We're going to get Chinese GDP out overnight. Paul Dobson joining us now from our Markets Live team. We should probably talk about what's been happening with the UK data as well. But, but more broadly, Europe at the moment is struggling to find direction. Europe at the moment is struggling to find a catalyst for growth. Fiscal policy... How important do you think that's going to be in this process? Uh, I think that, you know, kind of what people would like is for fiscal policy to be more important. But actually, it's kind of, you know, still a relatively irrelevant um, part of the the picture. You know, and the ECB has been squealing at uh, anybody who will listen for five years telling um, politicians to increase spending on development, on infrastructure, on structural reform, all of those things, all the things you were talking about already, Guy, um, is starting to come through a small amount in Germany. Some of the success stories have been, you know, places like Portugal. Uh, Now, all of a sudden, you know, even Greece is looking a little bit brighter where there have been reforms and there have been also, you know, kind of like some some efforts of spending on behalf of the governments uh, to get things going again. Uh, You know, actually, ultimately, right now, it feels like what matters for Europe isn't European data, isn't what European uh, lawmakers or policymakers are going to be doing. It's all about China, isn't it, Uh, at the end of the day, and what those Chinese figures tell us and whether China can stabilise. And if it can, that can help European exports and and keep things bubbling along, you know, kind of like, all right, so a 
proper kickstart for Europe isn't there, but but that at least would keep things uh, looking reasonably reasonably bright and optimistic. Well, as always, Paul, it's a relative game, and it's relative to how low the bar was coming into the new year. Incredibly low. And we go into Thursday looking for Eurozone PMIs to recover, at least on the manufacturing number and overall on the composite as well. Are you confident that we are going to see this positive spillover from a better China into Europe? pretty confident i'd say just because like you say the data have been so dismal uh from germany in particular looking at things like car exports you know the profit warnings have been from the 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 tech companies selling their chips to car makers in china selling you know kind of electronic goods those kinds of things so if the orders can increase from um, Asia in particular, then that can help the German economy and that can help drive the rest of Europe as well. You know, the bigger the bigger long-term problem is that, that dependence on the one hand and also kind of like secondary matter, the fact that those industries are all kind of, you know, all right, so they're, they're important to the global economy, but they're not ahead of the pack. They're not exciting investment opportunities, are they? No, we're going to talk about uh, what is happening in the IPO story next. So today we had a, a an IPO down in Milan, Nexi. This is a payments company. It's a pretty interesting space right now, um, but the IPO didn't go that well. Now, it may have been down to pricing uh, and it may have been down to the fact that they got that wrong. But nevertheless, it kind of highlights to my mind the differences between what we're seeing here in Europe and the investment opportunities that exist and those that exist in the United States and out in Asia in particular. We'll talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. It is 10 past five in the city of London. We have had an IPO in Europe today. Actually, to be fair, we've had a few over the last few trading sessions. But today, the biggest one we've seen in Europe thus far. Let's talk a little bit about what has been happening. So the company is called Nexi. Uh, it is a payments company. Now, the payment space is pretty hot right now. And as a result of which, people have been anticipating this IPO. And as a result of which, they may, I think, on the pricing front, have maybe taken the wrong clues from what they were hearing from the market in terms of the banks that were behind this. So the stock ended up finishing down by around 6.22%. It's circa, in terms of the market cap, a company of around 6.5 billion dollars. It's Europe's biggest initial public offering thus far. Like it may have just, been, like, as one analyst said today, it's it's kind of a good company, but it just had the wrong pricing. But the fact that it went down today and the fact that this is a a kind of standout story, I think highlights the differences between what we're seeing in Europe and the United States and Asia. Paul Dobson joining us still from our Markets Live team. He's Europe Markets Managing Editor. Paul, I, th- this is a relatively decent-sized IPO, Nexi. Like it's, a, it's a company, I think it's an enterprise value of around eight. I think it's got a kind of market cap of around six. Um, I think they were selling around two and a half billion in terms of stock that they were putting out there today. But but this is a, an exciting moment in some ways for Europe. But if you if you put it in comparison with with all of the companies that are coming through, the innovation that's being generated out of Asia and and the United States, it just highlights is the dearth of opportunities that exist here in Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as we were saying before before the break. Um, 
Europe's companies are, on the whole, uh, a little bit boring. Here is one that is exciting in an exciting field. You know, payments are, are a bit buzzy at the moment. Obviously, the World Pay deal, $34 billion earlier this year, highlights kind of how much of a premium is attached to payments companies at the moment. Um, on the other hand, actually, that is something that Europe's pretty strong in. In fact, there's been three IPOs in this space in the last year. And so there's two kind of problems in addition to just sort of Europe against against US or Asia here, one, this is a space where Europe is doing okay, but maybe a little bit saturated um, because of the, the fact that there are other companies doing similar things, you know, in the same sort of a bracket. And also, you know, kind of the problem with IPOs in general is they tend to clump, and that means that new companies are competing against each other for the same sorts of customers. Uh, that may also have been a slight stumbling block for Nexi. Judge us by, you know, a longer-term performance, says the CEO, not the one-day performance, uh, could be indigestion. So we'll have to see how the story develops from here. Uh, no doubt, you know, there's there's a lot of people that would like European tech to start doing better and start, you know, getting itself onto the same kind of playing field where where uh, some of the biggest tech companies in Asia and, and the US are. Yeah, I think you make a really good point, um, Paul. Europe is behind the United States on so many things. On payments, I would say it's far, far ahead of where the US is. You would be so surprised coming to shop in the United States. If you get a contactless card out, they look at you like you're a magician. It's only very <laughs> recently that things have changed where they actually have the machines so that you can use contactless cards. Beyond that, the likes of MasterCard and Visa have really struggled to convince the banks over here to push forward and release all the cards with contactless payments on because it's the banks themselves that need to pay for the cards and they've been reluctant to do it. Europe has been far and far ahead on top of this secular shift away from cash to contactless payments and to the world that Nexi and WorldPay operate in. In fact, what surprised me the most, Guy, is how far behind the United States is. Uh, and that's interesting considering the companies like Apple have tried to make a push into this space as well. You would have thought yeah. that a company like Apple that had the kind of heft that it has financially uh, and the brand awareness and the installed base, you'd be yeah. able to make more of a push into this. But as you say, it's always surprising that that you struggle to use this kind of There's kit. a big opening there for them, and I imagine that's why Apple are doing it, Guy. But you've been here. You're still giving your card to the waitress or the waiter. You have and to sign. Away, and you're signing for it. And there's <laughs> people here... Believe it or not, they still pay for their rent with a check. And that is almost standard for a I lot of people I remember the last time I wrote a check. Can you imagine? There's people in the UK that don't even have checkbooks anymore. In the United States, you still need one. Unbelievable. Paul Dobson's going to stick with Guy and I. Next up on a programme, we'll get to that Chinese data. Lots of it overnight. We'll give you a preview. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. A ton of data coming up through the week, including Chinese GDP. We'll have retail sales and industrial production as well. So look out for all of that. 
A lot of data coming out from China. And then on Thursday, U.S. retail sales and Eurozone PMIs coming out as well. On this holiday short and trading week, a lot to get through, including some reports on the ECB. Guy, first of all, Reuters. Reuters saying they've got some officials who are sceptical about the prospect of a second-half rebound. Then here at Bloomberg, our own reporting, suggesting that the enthusiasm for a tiered deposit rate isn't quite sufficient at the ECB to actually get us over the line to do anything. It's fascinating, isn't it? You look at what is happening with the banking sector at the moment and you just wonder why you wouldn't do it. And clearly there are a series of reasons behind it. I was listening to Lorenzo Bini Smuggy talking a little bit earlier on. He's talking his own book. He's the chairman of SOCGEN now. And he was just like, look, we need to do this. Um, and you do just get a sense from the banking sector that there is a degree, a huge degree of frustration that they have, they are not able to do what they would like to do for the for the economy. Now the Teltros are pumping liquidity through the system. They are providing, they have provided, and they will provide uh, at least the liquidity to be there. But ultimately, a profitable banking sector is is something that is critical for Europe, and. You just kind of wonder whether or not the ECB is standing in the way of that. Have you managed to find anyone outside of the ECB that, that thinks think it's a good idea? Exactly. Yeah, I, I really, I genuinely struggle. I think just about everybody you talk to says, "Yeah, why don't we do this?" I what I, I what I don't understand is 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 what the kind of barrier to this is. You, you would have thought you'd find yourself in a situation where you're looking at the European economy and you're going. Yeah, we need we need some help here. Let's try something else. This clearly isn't working. The only downside so let's, I can let, think of right now is that they think the market's going to run away with the idea that a rate cut comes next. That is literally the only downside I can but, think of. But presumably they can communicate that the two are not linked. You'd think so. I mean, I'm really struggling to come up with anything. Mr. Dobson? Well, yeah, I think that what Jonathan says is one of the one of the points that was highlighted in the story that the ECB doesn't want the market to think if they're if they're making accommodation like this for the the the, the banks that it means that the ECB is going to be keeping rates lower for longer or that it's going to you know be able to or want to cut rates uh, further. Um, and in addition to that, it doesn't want to be seen to be favouring the finance sector as well. So actually, I'm sorry, it doesn't want to be. Like, this is this is the transmission mechanism. <laughs> this is how it works. Like they are the financial sector. They, they are like, ECB banking sector, real economy. But, but the, you know, the ECB argument, and actually I thought the way that it was phrased quite cleverly when I when I read about it, I've been, been on vacation, but when I came back, you know, the ECB was grappling with the idea that it, it would be seen to be providing support to banks, um, you, you know, when it says that actually the, the accommodative monetary policy that it's already got out there provides enough of a carrot for the banks that it doesn't, you know that that it more than compensates for the stick of the negative deposit rates. So the way that the druggy phrased it, he said that the the bank, the central bank, wants to look into whether um, there was a monetary policy reason to do this. Whether in fact, you know, this was hampering the transmission mechanism, and so yeah. that would be the way that they could get it through and, and make it happen. You know, it feels like you know, kind of like I suppose. Once Draghi says something like this, and, and our story pointed out that Draghi said it without the approval of the governing council, but once Draghi adds or says, yeah, yeah. says something off the cuff, usually, ultimately, it does 
happen in some way or other. He manages to persuade everybody else, kicking and screaming, sort of by getting the market on his side and getting the market to believe that it's coming. Once it's priced in, well, hey, everybody's expecting it. Let's let's go and do it anyway. So, you know, of course, there's plenty of opposition to it because of all of those reasons, you know, but druggy mate well you know druggy's worried about his legacy now as much as anything else maybe this is let's his talk, one final let's talk a little effort. bit about that legacy i think what mm. president draghi did when he first came in was phenomenal he managed to address redenomination risk without buying a single single bond across the whole of europe then we had this classic european situation i think alexander stubb the former finnish prime minister sums it up perfectly the classic phases of european crises first you have crisis then you have chaos and then you have a suboptimal outcome <laughs> let's have a think about why we ended up with negative interest rates in the first place it was 2014 and president draghi could not get the governing council on board to execute qe proper and the only thing he could do to address a currency that he thought was significantly overvalued and the whole world agreed with him was to go into negative rates on the depot rate. I think, and this is just my view and I've never been able to ask President Draghi about it, but I think if he was able to pull the trigger on QE earlier, this isn't a road they would have ever gone down in the first place. And they've ended up in this negative interest rate world almost accidentally because Europe couldn't get its act together to begin with and do the right thing. Well, yeah, and you know the lasting effect of it is he's got negative rates. He's got a massive bank about balance sheet of bonds. He's got a lower currency, but he still hasn't got inflation. You know, so for all of that uh, huffing and puffing, the wrong, the wrong policies at the wrong times, maybe, and not enough buy-in, like you said, from everybody to to turn it around as well. But what does he do now? I, d- I suboptimal well, outcome. Well, That's yeah, it. but but before he goes, do you think he tries to? fix some of the the errors that have been generated and, and policy making is not something you do it's not a precise process it really isn't and anybody thinks that, yeah. that this is it, it just isn't he has an opportunity now i would have thought to at least fix some of the errors and clearly the european banking sector is one area in which there's going to be a there's going to be a, a sort of issue that that i think long term europe has to deal with europe would yeah. love to have a a a a, a, a market opportunity like the United States does, John. Oh, but absolutely. It, but it doesn't. I it would, relies on the banking sector. I would sector. say you can do two things. One, you can tie the hand to the governing council with stretching out forward guidance even longer, way beyond your term. That's one. And two, Guy, to your point, try and offset some of the mistakes that a lot of people think you made. And one of those is offsetting the damage done by negative interest rates. Mr. Dobson, nice to see you. Thank you very much indeed for coming Thank to see you, us. Paul. Paul Dobson joining us from our Markets Live team. Up next, we're going to be talking about what's happening with the Chinese data. As John says, a huge slew of data coming towards us. China overnight delivering GDP numbers. We'll talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. It is 5.30 in the city of London. Uh, I'm Guy Johnson. I'm joined by my colleague over in the United States, Mr. John Farrow. Um, at the moment, we're looking at U.S. markets that are broadly positive. We're up by around one-tenth of one percent on the S&P 500, holding just above the 2,900 level. FTSE 100 finishing up by 33 points, 74.69. Let's get some latest headlines. Mr. Charlie Pellet, over Hi, to you. Thank you very much. Let's begin with the U.K. labor picture. And the labor market continued its impressive performance in the three months through February. As employment jumped, wage growth far outpaced inflation. 
The Office for National Statistics said the number of people in work rose by 179,000. That is a record keeping unemployment at 3.9 percent, lowest since 1975. In the United States, lots of earnings. Bank of America trading down today after it said the interest rate boost that lifted first quarter earnings is likely to fade over the rest of the year. And BlackRock rebounded from a rocky end of last year as customers jumped into its fixed income products and showed interest in illiquid alternatives. And after the closing bell today, we will be hearing from both IBM and Netflix. Analysts surveyed by Bloomberg are looking for Netflix to report adjusted earnings per share of 75 cents on revenue of $4.40 billion. As always, analysts will be focused on subscriber gains. Should point out that so far this year, Netflix shares are up by almost 34%. Latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrell, back to you. Charlie Pellett, thank you, sir. Fascinated to see how this plays out, Guy, over the coming year in America and internationally as well. There's some real competition now for streaming services. Netflix, there's Hulu in the United States. Now we're going to get Disney+. Plus. The whole point of cutting the cord wasn't just about enjoying streaming. It was because it was cheaper. And now you're going to have to buy everything under the sun to make sure you can watch everything you want. Yeah, I, I get the sense that these are being priced at the point where it is not a zero-sum game, though. I get they're not they're not pushing out kind of hugely expensive products. So you could afford six ninety-nine here, eight ninety-nine there, and still be under kind of what I pay currently for a satellite subscription here in the UK. What are you paying for full Sky subscription now? So full, like it's kind of you, you put you put sports in there and everything else. It's getting pretty expensive, sort of seventy, eighty pounds a month, and that includes your broadband though. It's a lot of money. So it is a lot of money. So I think actually. While you are going to get fragmentation, I don't think the pricing point is going to be so great that it's actually going to be prohibitive. So I'm spending about $60 on Hulu, $55, $60, and I get the Premiership football on that with NBC Sports, get a lot of the news channels, get a lot of live TV there, a lot of streaming stuff as well. $60 isn't bad, but then when you start saying, well, you know what, I'm going to add a Netflix contract onto that, yep. I'm going to add a Disney Plus subscription onto that too, it starts to add up. How much live TV, like, apart from the news, how news much live sport, TV do you nothing watch? Nothing else. News and sport, yeah, exactly. nothing else. That's where that's, the premium will be. So that's, yeah, exactly. So that's where the, the cost point is. I think kind of that's the, that's the bit you've got to figure out is trying to understand. I, the, actually, it's not the news. It's the sport. And I think that's where I, where I think you'll again see some fragmentation. You go to Sky Sports in the UK. You, like, there's a kind of there's the football bit, there's the cricket, there's the golf, there's the whatever it is. And I just wonder whether that ends up being separated out as well. Michael McKee, are we going full circle here? <laughs> are we going back to the bundle again? Uh, probably not. Uh, I would like to ask everybody listening: raise your hands if you think John Farrell would ever be watching Disney Channel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just don't see that as, the thing as about a concern Disney Plus, for the, you. I, the idea that but, Disney Plus competes with Netflix, I mean, it doesn't really, does it? No, because it'll be different audiences. And that's well, okay. So, what does Disney own? It's it's it's, it's basically um, we're going. In, I mean, they own all of their. Um, they own the Disney Channel, which is shows for children, you know, from toddlers yeah, to sure. tweens, basically. So and and then they've got that enormous own, library of movies. Um, so there, there definitely could be people who want, and I'm sure they'll produce original content, which, uh, you know, people who want fairly wholesome stuff can watch that. Uh, and if you're getting Netflix 
or HBO or something like that. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, you're not in favor well, of fairly wholesome stuff. The word stuff. wholesome. Yeah. Wholesome. I mean, if you want diversity of content, you've got to go outside Disney+. Plus. Yeah, but, you know, you look at the way people are these days, and they don't really care about diversity. I mean, people are, are getting very narrow in their uh, in the things that they watch. I mean, you see it in the the news channel bifurcation. You know, you got the Fox people who never watch MSNBC uh, and you have the um, you know people who, who like one sport, we're not going to watch basketball. Yeah, right. I, like completely, hockey. I completely agree with you. I Somebody to, you know likes hockey doesn't watch basketball. I spoke to Tom Keane earlier. He yeah. said once Game of Thrones is done, he doesn't need HBO anymore. Well, their goal, their their issue is to try to come up with a replacement for it to keep people, keep people buying it. Um, what are the uh, just uh, out of curiosity, economic theory? What does it tell us about this? Uh, just tells you that people want to pay the lowest price, and that's the driving factor for them to get, uh, you know, exactly what they want and not pay for anything extra. And that's been the the problem with the bundles for so long is so many business models were launched on the fact that if I can get on the cable, I'm going to make money even if nobody watches my channel. And so you're going to see uh, some of these more obscure channels disappear probably because not that many people are going but to watch But it's interesting because bundling works in other businesses. You take a look at the telecom sector. Bundling has been a really big deal in the, in the telco sector. So you bundle up your, your broadband with your mobile phone with all the other services the potentially you could be throwing at it. And TV's part of that. That Venn diagram overlaps there as well. And that has, from a consumer point of view, theoretically saved you money. I just switched to mobile phone contract, and I got TV with it. I mean, yeah. I get, I get like. Was that AT and T? I, I wasn't going to mention a company, but I get right, like, Ofcom don't care I get like thirty channels, almost none of which. I would watch, so it doesn't do me that good. And I don't walk around with my head in my phone watching television all day. I think that's AT&T. What, what's the yeah, TV AT service does. called? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think it's it, Watch AT&T. Was it Direct There's, TV? So BT like do the same thing over they here. They do have – well, AT&T owns Direct TV, which is our version of Sky. Yeah. And uh, they uh, – they, they you can get that as a subscription with part of your um, – service i guess with part of your phone service but again, it is interesting that disney plus have come in with such an aggressive price point guy i think it's six dollars 99 yeah. and netflix by the way in the united states very recently put up prices which actually is why the subscription numbers later are going to be so interesting and the guidance too because there's been a price hike and extra competition as well and i don't know how you have any clarity if you're trying to put to, together any kind of forecast as to what subscriptions look like in the coming quarters no but i but i so so Netflix is fascinating as well, and as much as a lot of it is now being driven outside the United States. So I wonder whether this is also a signal that the, the United States is kind of reaching kind of critical mass when it comes to, to, to this kind of process. The United States, outside of the United States, streaming TV is still a – novelty is not the right word, but it is less developed um, – and I think I think Netflix increasingly and all of these companies increasingly are going to be looking to the global market rather than the U.S. market to drive to drive certainly the the, the subs numbers higher. If you or not have that a brand, drives the bottom line. If you have yeah. a brand like Disney and, and it will sell overseas. Yeah. You know, uh, American Netflix diners. does though. Like Netflix is a big enough yeah. brand that it that it sells out outside the United States. I just I just think it's kind of it's fascinating. And I think the point about kind of politics and news and the way people watch stuff and, and the fragmentation that we are seeing within that 
is absolutely fascinating and, and kind of how these worlds collide I think is going to be something that I think is going to is, is going to end up interacting with each of these different spaces. Um, we're going to carry on the, the chat. We should probably be talking about some of the data as well, what's coming up. Uh, the Chinese numbers are worth paying attention to. We've had the big bank earnings out uh, continuing. We get Morgan Stanley as well tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, 5.40 in the city of London. Uh, pay, te- pay attention overnight because you are going to be getting some data coming out of China. You're going to want to dig into the details, folks, about what is going on here. So basically, we've got the world's number two economy. It's likely to slow. Q no- Q1 number is going to come down to around 6.3%. We'll see whether or not that actually is beaten. But the monthly readings of retail sales, investments uh, and industrial output also are going to be under the microscope to give us an idea of whether or not the stimulus that the Chinese authorities have pushed into the economy over the last few months are starting to show signs of working and whether or not ultimately this will end up influencing the way that the trade talks between the United States and China conclude. Mike McKee, our international economics and policy correspondent, joining John in New York. Mike, what are you going to be looking for here? Well, you start with the GDP numbers because that's going to capture Wall Street's attention, uh, global Wall Street's attention. Everybody wants to know if they're going to meet their growth targets and uh, any sign that, as you mentioned, the stimulus is starting to boost things. So um, economists will also look at the industrial production and retail sales numbers to see if the money is getting into the economy, because that's a little more contemporary. It's March numbers. Um, But just the overall picture of whether China is starting to grow again, we're starting, uh, the the first quarter numbers are always distorted a little bit by the Chinese New Year, but the uh, March numbers should be a cleaner read than February in terms of production and sales. So uh, we'll see how things are going. I'm not sure it has a major impact on the trade negotiations uh, if they come in around as expected and are growing a little bit more because the U.S. is fairly firm on what it wants one way or the other. And I, I unless we're surprised and they get a huge uh, upside surprise to growth that tell them they can uh, not take this seriously. But I, I think they do worry about growth prospects. It's always been difficult to get a read on the Chinese labor market, and you can kind of take it with a pinch of salt, but over the last few months, we have had this slight inflection higher in a jobless rate in China, which no doubt puts the Communist Party on edge a little bit. I'm going to be laser focused on the retail sales, just because the nature of the stimulus recently has been targeted at the consumer in China, straight into the pockets of your everyday person, and they hope, I'm sure, that we get a lift there. Mike? Yeah, well, what you, you want to see if the tax cuts uh, actually translate into people going out and buying things. The jobless numbers in China are a little hard to make much out of. The yeah. numbers are, have been reported for only about three years, so you don't have a lot of cyclical information on it. And so it's kind of hard to know what they actually mean. And one would assume that they're not completely accurate. Uh, the biggest thing for them, which we don't get a chance to see, is you know how civil unrest is, whether people are upset about their uh, employment or pay status. What I find interesting as well, guys, is that, that we are seeing a pickup in the Chinese housing market. Um, and it's kind of some of these indicators that I think are are starting to show signs of life. Mike, is there a is there the possibility that we get a better kind of Chinese growth out of this process? 
I, the concern has always been that the Chinese are just going to bulk up on debt and, and they're more worried about the politics, as John says, of, of kind of civil unrest and the unemployment picture. But is it possible that actually this time round they're delivering a higher quality of growth? The stock market is being driven a lot by kind of the barbars of this world at the moment, which you would have thought to would have point to a more consumer-driven economy. They've been moving to a much more consumer-driven economy. The problem is being able to sustain that without the debt that fueled its growth. And they were moving in that direction. There, there had been predictions that this would be kind of a down year for them anyway uh, because they wanted to be able to let companies start to fail. Uh, and then uh, politically, it became much more difficult with Donald Trump um, putting tariffs on and uh, Xi Jinping wanting to seize more control over the economy. And so it's kind of a difficult outlook for them. They they can't keep running up debt, although there is a theory now you can run up debt a lot more than you used to. But We're going to give that a miss today, MMT. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mention You mentioned you, it. Well, no, you, no, kind of you mentioned it. Come on. <laughs> you mentioned it. Mike McKee, you can't, you know, that's, no, can't do that. Um, Mike McKee's going to stick with us. We'll allow him to do so. It's great to have him with us on the show. We're going to talk banks, uh, and we're going to talk about the rest of the week. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio, you're listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. Here's your week ahead. Coming up tomorrow, EIA crude oil inventory report in the United States. Some first quarter GDP together with industrial production and retail sales data out of China. We get the Morgan Stanley Q1 earnings to wrap up earnings on Wall Street. We get the U.S. Fed beige book as well and the trade balance through to Thursday on this holiday shortened trading week for many of you. Thursday, U.K. retail sales on the other side of the channel. We'll be getting Eurozone flash PMIs, a read on April manufacturing services and a composite PMI for you as well. In the United States, jobless claims, retail sales and the Philadelphia Fed business outlook on a Friday. Who is coming to work on Friday in America? New York International Auto Show and U.S. housing yeah, starts and building permits. So we've got the bond market open on Friday morning. Two o'clock. Good luck with that, folks. What for? You know, you know that uh, if you're... Don't tell the boss anything, that because it'll you, make me come If you're work. anything over 20 years old, you're probably not going to be. You're going to have the most junior traders in... Think, thinking of Fridays. Isn't Friday the day work. you do your bond market show? No, we're doing it Thursday this week, Guy. Don't try and cause trouble. <laughs> I can tell you a really interesting day. This one, this one's really interesting, and I'm avoiding all of that right now. I'm going through to July. You know Independence Day is on a Thursday this year. So July 4th, the Thursday, the 5th is payrolls Friday. How many people wanted that Friday off oh, but yeah. can't take it We've anymore? had that before, and... Uh, the people who trade for a living, they really hate that. I mean, they are so angry about that because you can't go anywhere. You, no. Somebody's got to go into the office and react to the payrolls report. You're going to spend an hour and a half in the office. Literally an hour and a half. Yeah. Literally. So here's my question. Would it actually matter if you didn't? Are the bomb, are the kind of, I, does payrolls actually have that big an impact? Yeah. I know we all. I know we all get excited about it. It's a good question to ask traders. John can ask this. <laughs> you can pose this between now. You know my and view January on this. 5th, you know 4th. we have two very different views on this, Michael McKee. But you know my view on this. I think it's the most important data point in the world still. I think it sets the tone. Now I don't think 
a single data point matters. I think the three-month rolling average, I'm with you, ultimately is what really sets the trend. But I do still think it's, I think it's the most important data point in the world still. Um, well, it may be that, but uh, do you have to have a trade? I think Guy has a good point. Do you have to have a trade on on Friday? Oh, that, can I you come back in on Monday? I, I and, can't answer that question. You know. I, I understand your point there. I, I think if you're on the south side, you've got to definitely be there to communicate to clients. They're going to expect you to digest and break down your specific view on whatever the payrolls report is. I, I agree with the hour and a half. Let's put it that way. Have your uh, have your uh, you want me London. to do it? You want me to have do your a London? Survey? Have your you, London desk do your it? Your desk do it, yeah. Guy, don't bring us into it. <laughs> well, I think, well you're going to be at work. Isn't that what we do on U.S. holidays anyway on TV? Doesn't Pretty our London much, yeah. desk take over? Weren't we here on <laughs> Boxing Day? I mean, you know. So don't get me started we'll on trade. U.S. holidays. <laughs> do you know who's got the longest holiday coming up? Isn't Japan Golden Week ten days this year? Oh, I don't know. Is it? Isn't it's it coming a... up in a couple of weeks, Guy? I think you could be right. Yeah, I think Golden I, Week in Japan is coming up, and they're basically off for 10 days. So if anyone is worried about gappy markets, typically that witching hour between when the U.S. closes and Tokyo opens up, we've seen really, really gappy, big, liquid, yeah. thin volume around the FX market. You're going to have about a week of that in a couple of weeks. Uh, so keep an eye on that, on that too. By volume. Maybe. I mean, we can talk about that. Volatility has been incredibly suppressed across asset. Um, look, I know a lot of people see low volatility and then equate that with complacency, but if realized vol is equally as low, is that complacent or is that just the right trade? It's an interesting point, but you would have thought, like, so you're a, you, you've had a really cracking start to the year, okay? Equity mark, I know a lot of people are behind their benchmarks, but let's just kind of assume the benchmarks are roughly where the market is. You've had a really great start to the year, vol's really cheap. Hey, there's got to be an option out there to say, you know what, I'm going to lock some of this in. And like basically, kind of insurance is cheap. Are people going to start buying it? Yeah. And I just kind of there's got to be an argument around that. So cross there? asset, what I've been confused with at the moment is through equity, through credit. There's a lot of optimism. You see it in sovereign debt as well. You don't see it so much in core government bonds. In fact, you don't see it at all in bonds and treasuries. What's really interesting to me is we begin 2019. Let's just pretend you've got a really optimistic view and you're right and you push that optimism through equities and credit. Fantastic. You're doing great. Congratulations. If you try to push it through foreign exchange, nothing has Nada. happened. Yeah. Nothing. At some point, and I know this is one of those throwaway statements that probably doesn't mean much because obviously at some point in the future, we break out of a trend. But you get the feeling that for G10, that has got to be close. I, I genuinely wonder whether or not that moment is going to come when the, the European trade story kicks into gear. Because I, and, I, and everybody who talks to you sees this one coming. So theoretically, it's got to be priced. But the president always comes out of the gate hard. Yeah. He always comes out of the gate hard on this kind of stuff. And he's going to be swinging and he's going to be kind of he's, he's going to the language is going to be aggressive and the Europeans aren't, aren't ready for that. And you just kind of wonder whether that's the kind of thing that, that gets I the euro out I wonder if they're the not range. ready for it. I mean, Emmanuel Macron, obviously, he's distracted now, but he was pretty firm on Monday in not going along with the mandate for the trade talks. Uh, and he may be willing to stand up to uh, the president could probably the germans help won't him be help. but the germans won't be there's no way they I, the germans are terrified about their auto sector well sure but um, it's going to do the same here i mean this is going to be an interesting game theory who who if is you want if you first. want a pinata to beat ahead of the 2020 election isn't it easier to beat on europe 
isn't trade with China much more significant for the United States? I mean, I'm just guessing here, Mike. You tell me. Well, I would have thought that it's easier no, the, and you could limit the, the economic EU, impact going the, after Europe. Uh, the total trade with Europe is bigger with the, than the with China. Than with China. Interesting. Um, you know, if you put all the countries together. And so uh, because they have a unified trade policy, I suppose that makes them... Now, Britain's the biggest trading partner of the U.S. within the EU, so if, if they drop out, then that changes the calculation <laughs> I believe, I believe bit, that the UK is the only one that we, uh, we have a trade surplus with in uh, the United States. But, uh, anyway, uh, it sh- it'll be fun. It'll be interesting to watch. I don't know if it'll be fun, but interesting. Well, you meant fun, didn't you? <laughs> a little bit. Michael McKee, great to catch up with you. Alongside Guy Johnson, I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable. This is Blimbo Radio.